about money. I learned a great deal from you at the university about the violet ray, the ultraviolet ray, which you said was the highest color in the spectrum. You were wrong. Here in this machinery, I have gone beyond that. I have discovered the great ray that first brought light into the world. Oh, and your proof? Tonight you shall have your proof. I am going to turn that ray on that body and endow it with life. And you really believe that you can bring life to the dead? That body is not dead. It has never lived. I created it. I made it with my own hands. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. In the name of God. Now I know what it feels like to be God. What was once a 1931 horror film is maybe becoming reality. Fox News reports, life as we know it, nearly created in a lab. The, the article reads, one of life's greatest mysteries is how it begins. Scientists have pinned it down to roughly this. Some chemical reactions occurred about 4 billion years ago, perhaps in a pre-mortal tidal soup, or maybe with the help of volcanoes, or possibly at the bottom of the sea between uh, mica sheets to create biology. Now scientists have created something uh, in the lab that is very similar to this, the article says. That's the topic of today's Table Scraps. Thanks for listening to Table Talk Radio. Uh, to help me with this discussion is a friend of mine. He's a senior at Denver University with a double major in molecular biology and computer science. And uh, actually a second cousin of mine, Jesse Gigline. Thanks for helping me out with, the, with this interview. No problem. And, Glad to be here. And the person we are interviewing is kind of the, the, the person that we contact whenever topics like this come up, and that is the director of College Ministry of Creation Truth Foundation, Dr. Charles Jackson. Dr. Jackson, welcome back to the program. That's good to be back. Uh, first question is, uh, I guess, is intent. Um, what do, do you think that this uh, project is really out for uh, new scientific scientific data, or do you think there's another motivation behind this? Well, most research teams are looking for new scientific data. Of course, the overarching goal of uh, many evolutionist scientists is to somehow prove what so far requires magic to happen, to somehow prove that evolution could indeed create life before there was any life on this planet by natural means without the help of, of a creator, of God. Uh, and so how, how close are they to actually creating life in a lab? Well, what they did in this particular uh, project that you mentioned, I've read the article, they, they created, a, I believe it was a strand of RNA that's capable of making a copy of itself. It's a self-replicating molecule. Now, that's really cool that they've made you know, some RNA, not DNA, but RNA that can actually make a copy of itself. But that's really all it can do is just make copies of itself, and that's, those, those little strands of RNA can't do anything else but make copies of themselves, and so that's not exactly a living thing. Plus, it's not DNA. It can't eat or metabolize. It can't uh, really, well, it can reproduce if you want to call it that, but uh, it, it doesn't have a cell. There's no membrane around it. There's no enzyme action going on. All it, can, it just has enough 
to keep making copies of itself. Now, an evolutionist say that's the start. But so what if it is? It just proves it takes a team of scientists in a lab to do something like this, and it doesn't happen in mud puddles. So, Dr. Jackson, uh, one of the things that I noticed when I was reading this as well was, and this is somewhat understandable given the fact that Fox News is reporting to a lay audience that doesn't have the scientific background, but one of the things that I noticed was a lot of vagaries uh, concerning the experiments themselves and how they actually accomplished getting this RNA molecule to replicate itself. Well, they would have to have some uh, associated enzymes. They'd have to have the thing floating around in a test tube full of free nucleotides, because that's what RNA molecules are, a long string of nucleotide molecules linked together. And, uh, and then it would, it would have to be able to assemble another copy of itself made of these building blocks. So there'd have to be plenty of the building blocks floating around, just like they are floating around inside the nucleus of a cell. Now, again, how would those get there? And evolutionists have, have got just problem upon problem with this sort of thing. The vagaries, probably like you're suggesting, are because it's real complex lab stuff that, although you and I would be interested, um, Jesse, but, but the average person wouldn't want to be bothered with those kind of details. The upshot they're trying to bring is, though, we've shown how evolution could happen. Let's talk about why they used RNA as opposed to using DNA, um, given the fact that most lay people are familiar with DNA. For somebody to use RNA, what was their motivation behind doing such a thing? Well, chemically, it's a lot more difficult for them to imagine how DNA, even though it's, it's very chemically similar to RNA, it's harder for them to imagine how DNA uh, could have, have created itself in the primordial ooze of the ancient Earth. So uh, there's a whole theory about the origin of life on Earth by evolution called the RNA world, that, that every form of life in the world was using RNA for its genes instead of DNA at the beginning. And indeed, there are some viruses uh, today. Uh, retroviruses are, are RNA-based in their, in their genetic uh, code. So that's, that's probably why they picked RNA, because uh, of the theory that all life on Earth was at one time. Uh, basing its chromosomes on RNA. Yeah, it was interesting to me. I was sitting in class uh, about a year ago, and my professor, we were talking about RNA, and he actually started um, going in on this RNA world hypothesis. And from the molecular standpoint, it was pretty interesting to me to listen to kind of the chicken and the egg argument as to, well, we know that DNA gets translated into proteins, and proteins generally do perform all the functions of the cell, whereas RNA had just previously been thought to be um, more or less just a transporter of the, that information to turn into proteins. And the way that um, RNA is, has been found to um, sort of have some um, protein-like enzymatic activity, in other words, it can actually catalyze reactions and things of that nature, um, was a pr kind of a big step forward for them in terms of their uh, proving evolution could possibly have happened. Do you have any comments about that? Well, it was a big step forward in the, for the whole world of science to discover that little RNA uh, snippets flying around inside of our cells are actually doing some of the stuff that proteins usually do. When I said that uh, they had to create some enzymes that would help this RNA molecule make copies of itself, 
it's important to note that enzymes are made of protein. They're, they're a kind of a protein. And RNA would be coding for the proteins. Uh, DNA codes for the proteins. And you're right, RNA is usually a transporter of that kind of information on how to make proteins. And it still acts as a transporter in those RNA viruses also. It, it actually has to first be converted into DNA before the thing can, uh, can uh, actually function. So uh, they really haven't solved a whole lot. They, chicken and the egg, what they did was they, they made a chicken and an egg, and they put it in a test tube and said, look, we've, we've almost created life. Um, it was really more a picture of a chicken and, you know, a picture of an egg, because these things, uh, they depend on each other. And it's a very, very, even they will admit, it's a very, very, very simple version of what they'd like to do. But what if, you know, they mix some chemicals together and zap it and go, it's alive, it's alive, and, and out comes some sort of a, a giant germ or something, and they, they say they've created life. Again, all it proves is that it takes 50 years of teams of scientists and billions of dollars of federal funding to create something like this in a laboratory, and that's intelligent design. That's not evolution by random processes floating around in the ocean or in mud puddles in the, or on the earth three and a half billion years ago. Well, that's interesting that you bring up the, the fact that this was done in a laboratory. Um, I tried to look up what conditions they had actually performed these reactions under, and I couldn't find anything specific. But just with the differences between RNA and DNA, what sorts of uh, conditions would you expect for an RNA molecule to actually be viable in this supposed primordial soup? Well, one of the things that you've got to have is, is no oxygen present, because delicate biological molecules will oxidize if there's oxygen present. Now, your body, when you breathe in oxygen to burn the calories of your fuel molecules that you eat, that oxygen has got to be carefully uh, nabbed by the red blood cells, carefully shunted and channeled, sort of like the gasoline goes through the fuel lines in your car you don't want hot you know gasoline spurting out on the hot engine block and bursting into flame and destroying everything and you don't want oxygen getting loose in your system it's got to only go where you where it's supposed to go to the mitochondria uh where uh, where the energy conversion can take place and the burning of calories can take place so we, our bodies control oxygen very, very carefully to make sure it doesn't oxidize our proteins and all our other biological molecules like DNA and RNA. So uh, if there's any oxygen loose in the environment where they have this RNA molecule, it will oxidize. We all know we need to eat our antioxidants. Everyone hears about the wonderful you know, cranberries and blueberries and bioflavonoids. and we're, It's all important to have your antioxidants. That's because these, if any of these little oxygen uh, molecules, atoms, or something that can do the same thing, that can oxidize, oxidizing agents like free radicals, go running around in your system, it'll destroy biological molecules. It can cause cancer, it can cause uh, mutations. So your body goes around cleaning these things up that do get away. But if any of these were running loose in that test tube with the RNA, well, it would just disassemble it. It would oxidize it the same way that oxygen rust uh, the metal on a car. It, it oxidizes the paint job and will oxidize the steel, the iron. So they, they, one thing they would need uh, in this broth would be to, uh, to make sure no oxygen would, could get to the RNA molecules. Dr. Jackson, uh, I'm going to uh, ask a question here. So uh, 
you know, we have the uh, uh, you know those who who are trained in science then then you know poor old me over here but <laughs> I, I I reading through this article at the end it says um, that uh, another scientist said that the researchers did an, uh, an equivalent to creating a scenario that might have led to the origin of life so in other words they're they're creating a scenario to to similar uh, conditions of what life in their thought could have begun. But at the beginning of the article, they made it pretty clear they don't know how life began. Well, um, it's, it's good when they're honest about that. <laughs> and uh, that is still a big mystery to them. And uh, evolutionists will often say, well, you creationists, you know, don't you understand? The theory of evolution picks up after the event where life first originated, and then evolution goes from there. Um, but the, if that's true, then how come every single science book that explains evolution and the theory begins with the origin of life? No, it is step one in the evolution theory. It is a part of it, and they've got to deal with this. And I'm glad when they say we do not know. Now, I'm not saying because they do not know how it happened that I've proved that it didn't. But what bothers me is many textbooks, and you watch things on the Discover Channel and PBS, and they'll, they'll just display one of these ideas, one of these possible theories, one of these chicken and egg things, and they will you know, present it to you as though, well, look what we, we did figure this out. So don't worry, we figured this out. And, and they never did. It's, and, and that article admits right at the beginning, right this week, no evolutionist knows how life got started. They haven't figured out this impossible problem, which Louis Pasteur, back in the 1800s, said can't happen because that's spontaneous generation. And every high school biology student always learns that spontaneous generation is a theory that was disproved 150 years ago, 140 years ago by Louis Pasteur, that spontaneous generation cannot happen. Life can only come from life. Life cannot come from non-life. Um, I dug out one of my textbooks, actually, um, and was looking up some statistics about the differences between RNA and DNA and the fidelity of the replication of RNA versus DNA. Because as you know, Dr. Jackson, and as you mentioned earlier, our body runs around fixing errors all the time. And so one of the reasons that our information is stored in DNA is because it's much more stable than RNA. Um, and I looked up some numbers that the scientists had estimated the error rates um, when you're replicating RNA versus DNA, and they were guessing that RNA replication is actually about 10,000 times less accurate um, than DNA replication. Oh, that's, that's an interesting number. I had not heard that before, that number. Well, you know, why should you stop replication errors? According to evolution theory, that's how evolution proceeds, is by replication errors. Why would the your body tries so hard to make sure there aren't replication errors, that there aren't mutations, that there aren't copying errors, because, I mean, after all, those lucky occasional errors are how the scales of lizards turned into feathers and their front legs turned into wings and their bones became hollow and they got a specialized lung system, perching feet and a bird-like skull, and that's how lizards turned into birds. I don't know if you realize this, but evolutionists believe that birds evolved from dinosaurs. And so uh, without all those mistakes, that could never happen. Why would every living system known to, known to be alive you know, in the universe and basically on our Earth, 
why would every living system fight this wonderful replication error uh, process? Yeah, well, obviously, um, <laughs> you mentioned this earlier, too. We see all kinds of diseases that crop up because of these uh, replication errors. I mean, cancer is the, the the benchmark example of this, right? You have a mutation in some important gene that regulates how fast your cell replicates, and man, it, it gets out of control. Yeah, most of the times when there's a chemicals or things like that that are, are mutagenic or that generate mutations are also carcinogenic. Those those mutations can lead to cancer because uh, if a cell gets damaged, usually it, it gets damaged in the DNA. It usually just shuts down. It short circuits and dies. But if it survives the mutation, it could just go crazy and it forgets, you know, protocol and it just starts doing nothing but multiplying wildly and making a whole knot or a wad of these cells that are all renegade cells and they don't do the job that they originally designed, designed to do. And then they just make this giant mass that, that grows bigger and bigger and it gets in the way of other cells who are trying to do their jobs and that's what a tumor is. Which is interesting um, because that's really all that these scientists are reporting that they accomplished was, well, we got this chemical molecule that can do nothing but uh, replicate itself. And it's so, so, that is just, that is like a million times away from having a cell. It's just an RNA molecule and a very simple one at that. And it had to be created by intelligent minds. It didn't happen all by itself. Uh, like I said, it only proves that intelligence, someone deliberately making these things happen, even can do this very simple step, which is really proof there's a God, a creator, not proof that it could happen by itself. Absolutely. Um, I want to ask you, change topics a little bit here. Um, given the fact that they were talking about their surprise that in the process of making these enzymes or RNA molecules that could replicate themselves, that they also observed recombination, um, which we've also mentioned that uh, is kind of one of their big benchmarks of evolution. Um, given the fact that they only mention the presence of RNA molecules in their test tubes, does this surprise you that um, recombination could possibly occur? Well, if you've got a bunch of molecules doing um, actions like this, it wouldn't be too surprising that uh, some of them might recombine, uh, that you might have something like that happening, especially since that does happen in in, uh, in genetics in living cells, because this is where it happens, is, is in the nucleic acids. Uh, DNA and RNA are both nucleic acids, and that's what the NA in both of them stands for, nucleic acid. So it wouldn't be too surprising. But again, this is artificially revved up. Um, they're getting all these processes to happen, and then they basically say, look, we've, we've created life, uh, which, of course, you know, DNA or an RNA, even if it's creating you know, all these different kinds of enzyme things going on. Unless you've got a cell, you, you don't have uh, life. Uh, the cell theory or the cell law, uh, again, from the 1800s, says that all living things are composed of cells. And that's where it becomes uh, controversial, even among scientists, whether viruses are really alive or not, because they don't really have a cell. And prions, those little uh, bits of protein that, that cause these problems like mad cow disease, uh, they're even in less uh, 
qualified to be called, a, a, you know, alive, so to speak, even though they're biological molecules. But the whole science of life is really complicated, and, and what life actually is, is it just chemical reactions happening? Are your thoughts just interactions of brain chemicals uh, firing the nerve endings in your brain and the neurons of your brain? And most evolutionists I talk to, uh, especially if they're atheists, uh, believe that thought is an illusion. It's just circuit boards in your head that are, are, are uh, flashing around signals, and you, it creates this illusion that you are conscious, that you think, and that, uh, that you have a mind. And, and many evolutionists just believe that uh, there isn't any such thing as consciousness or a mind. And uh, that would be what they'd have to say. But then the problem is, uh, if that's true, then how do you know your thinking on this is, is means anything, too? It, life is more complicated than, uh, you know, a, uh, uh, I don't know, 100 uh, kilobase strand of, uh, of RNA floating in a test tube. And they know this. They know they're light years away from actually creating life. They say nearly, because this is the closest they've ever gotten before. And I love this kind of research. It's cool, it's exciting, it's interesting, and we're learning about how RNA works. We're learning about how living systems works, work in ways we never understood or, or even dreamed about before. And it, all it does is continue to show how intricately coordinated all of these systems are. We can take this one thing lifting it out of the context of a, a cell and, and make it do some of the simplest, simplest, most simplest, conceivably simplest things that these things actually do in, inside your body. Like I said, it's, it's a million times more complex what's actually happening in, in any living thing, like even in an amoeba. But it's neat that we can get something like this and uh, make it jump up on the lab table and do a tap dance and see, see how this one function works. How could an RNA molecule actually, or any self-replicating molecule, do this, uh, it's, it's just showing that this whole thing is so well-organized and it, it's so intricately designed that it couldn't have happened by chance. I mean, that's, that's the big thing with evolutionists and, and creationists and the intelligent design movement is this all works so beautifully and is so intricate. How, how could it have happened all by itself in mud puddles, even if there was no oxygen. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think that's probably uh, an important point to remember, too, that uh, when we were talking to evolutionists, that their definition of life is basically night and day from what a Christian uh, would define it as. Um, you know, like you said, just defining it as a bundle of nerves and neurons firing and all these chemical signals going around um, is is just something completely different from the view that we take of our uh, our spiritual nature. Well, Jesse, you're you're in class now. Uh, what what are your professors? What impression are you getting from them? Uh, not as people, but as teachers. And it may be different as a person. They might talk to you different than they do as a biology professor when they switch hats. Because many of these atheist people, you know, say, "Oh, reality is subjective." But I tell you, if they walk out in the street in front of a moving bus, all of a sudden reality makes sense to them now, and they'll get out of the way. Uh, you know, th this stuff often doesn't work unless it's behind the podium in a classroom, you see, as philosophies that they run their lives the way everyone else does by common sense. But so I'm just wondering what your professors as a whole, what kind of Im impression do you get from them on what they think life is 
and life is all about. And you could contrast that between what they are as people, you know, that you know and warm, warm-blooded people you can talk to, or what they are when they have their professor hat on, if, if you wanted to. I hope you don't mind me asking you a question. No, not at all. Um, that's interesting. Um, when I first heard about this theory, it was actually the professor my the professor that told me about this theory in class uh, is actually my advisor. So I have a pretty close relationship with him, and it is interesting to think about um, the different perspectives and the way that you're right. They talk completely differently when you talk about you know common life things with them outside of the classroom. Uh, my advisor is actually a big forensics guy, and to me, it's it's kind of interesting, right? Because he's in the business of um, of protecting life and saving lives, and you know, putting criminals behind bars and things of that nature. And then to go out and talk about such evolution evolutionary things, at least, and kind of bring life down to such a such a I don't know what you want to say scientific explainable level. Um, it it is rather surprising when you hear um both sides of that um and in, honestly to me it, it i can't quite reconcile it with my beliefs so well it is irreconcilable I, I you know i have no doubt that your advisor is an intelligent uh person and uh, a good scientist and probably good at forensics too but this artificial compartmentalization of the thinking is very similar to the kind of thinking that was required by a uh, a kindly old uh, uh, German gentleman who joins the SS and then sends Jews to be gassed. I mean, and they would go home and you know kiss their children goodnight and tuck them in bed, and then the next day they go to work and you know uh, put more uh, Jewish people in the ovens. Uh, I'm not I'm not by any means comparing your professor to to uh, uh, some sort of Holocaust uh, demoniac, but I am saying that you know people often live in two different worlds when they feel that's the only thing that conveniently will work for them. Now, your professor is into forensics. He knows he has got to have the information all lined up in perfect order to say, you know, rapid fire this, 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 and this, and that means this, 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 and this. And so now we know that, uh, that the, this matches up, and here now we are in a court of law, and this has got to be presented so well that it can convince a jury. Whereas if he were to take the evidence that supposedly exists for evolution and put that in a court of law, the jury would never buy it. If he were to put his, I'm a forensic scientist who's doing, you know, CSI, crime scene investigation stuff, if I present something to court like I presented in my biology class, it would never fly. And, uh, and he must also then realize that what is presented you know, from the podium, from the pulpit in the biology classroom, uh, never resembles uh, something so clean and free of, of, of uh, questions uh, as what is presented in a court of law. And this is really what science ought to be. It's, science should be exacting. And I'm not criticizing them for not having all the answers. Uh, forgive me if I've come off that way. What I criticize them for doing is presenting a whole, a whole body of assumptions, hypotheses, and outright guesses, and some of them wild-haired guesses, as though 
here it is, guys. Here it is, girls. We we've sewed it all up. This is it. We know now. And and, the, and it's there's there's like you know two percent of that has been proven. It's the factual data. The rest of it is just hopeful thinking. And and they present it as though we figured, we proved it, we got it nailed. And it isn't. That's what I call lying. And I don't think they're doing it on purpose. I think they've been schmoozied into the idea of thinking that this is okay uh, in science class. But it, it's really not. It's, it's, dis, it's dishonest. And if you... Uh, you know, let the left side of the brain know what the right side's doing at the time, you'd be couching everything you taught about evolution in terms of we think this, this possibly, maybe, hypothetically, suppose, suppositionally, this could maybe, might be, you know, you'd have to say those kind of words instead of the way things are laid out on those TV specials saying, here's how life began. Uh, that's what annoys me as a teacher, is that... Uh, you should not present guesses as though they are facts. Well, isn't that interesting, too, that uh, Fox presented this as more or less a fact that we're one step closer to creating life. And for whatever reason, we seem to have this grandiose respect for scientists, which in most cases is deserved. But for some reason, um, in evolution, we give them a lot of leeway because... Most laymen, reporters in general, um, will say, well, I don't know enough to understand that and won't question the, the underlying factual basis of it. Well, I, I don't know that... I think that sometime between the 1930s when that movie was made and, and maybe the 1960s when we had the moon launch, somewhere along the line, and this is a hypothesis of mine, scientists got, got uh, shoved onto them the status of high priest of truth. And I don't know if they were ready to handle that, because they, the scientists, were always dealing in, in hypotheses and experiments. Even the word experiment means give it a try. You know, I'm going to experiment with this. I'm going I'm to try something. I'm going to try something out and see if it works. They're always trying stuff out and seeing if it works. And true, some of those things lead to practical things, like... Uh, like radar and uh, microwave ovens and uh, uh, electron microscopes and new drugs uh, uh, and pharmaceuticals and things that are actually useful. That's, you know, applied science or, or technology. And uh, so these successes of applied science in, in ways of making our lives better, you know, with plastics and uh, printed circuit boards and, and things for computers, uh, is interpreted by the public as though these people have magical abilities to to just do anything, and and they I don't think originally scientists wanted that kind of uh, responsibility put on them to be so perfect, but the public wanted it that way, and and they and many of them then just took it on, and many scientists do talk about their guesses as though there's something divine about them themselves as people and and they're not it's like the pharaohs who were considered gods or emperor hirohito of japan during world war ii who was considered to be a god and uh we have put this god-like uh, um, responsibility and authority and this image and this 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 uh, mantle this cloak on scientists and many of them have just accepted that uh that title of demigod of nature 
And yes, we can do anything. And yes, we can understand everything. And yes, you're not smart enough to. Look, scientists are everyday people just like you and me. Uh, there's nothing godlike about them. Some of them are quite brilliant people, um, but, uh, but they can be wrong. And the most honest ones are, will tell you, oh, yeah, all my stuff is theoretical. I just, I just enjoy you know, doing experiments. But, oh, I would never tell anyone I've got this nailed down. When they do get something nailed down, they win a Nobel Prize for that. And very few scientists win those. And lastly, Dr. Jackson, uh, reiterate what you have said so far this interview. Um, will they ever, in your estimation, be able to create life in a laboratory? You know, I, I would, uh, you're asking me now to hypothesize, and uh, I might certainly venture an opinion different from many other creation scientists and, and uh, 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 evolutionary scientists, too. I think it's not inconceivable that we could create an artificial life form. We, it'd be a thousand times more complicated than what they've already done, but it could be. Now, uh, so far, the closest we got to actually creating a living cell was we took these bacteria and put them in a test tube that essentially had a bunch of digestive enzymes that tore the bacteria to shreds, kind of like a blender, and then we took those parts and used other enzymes to reassemble them, kind of like little microscopic Frankensteins. And they said, that was about three years ago, and they said, look, we created life in the test tube. It was really just, they killed a bunch of bacteria, then put them back together again and said we created life. Uh, but these people here are doing much something much more like really creating life. They're actually building from the building blocks, from nucleotides. They're assembling these RNA molecules. Probably, I don't know if they got uh, pieces of RNA molecules from living things and then sewed them together with enzymes, or whether they actually put the nucleotide sequence together themselves, they kind of lent the impression that they created the sequence themselves or mimicked the sequence that was in, uh, in something, some living thing that exists, maybe an E. coli. I think I remember something about that in the article. But whatever they are doing and, and whatever they've done and whatever they're going to do, it, it's not inconceivable that they could create uh, an artificial bacteria one way or another, even from scratch. But as I said, all that'll prove is that it takes very high intelligence, very controlled conditions, and and brilliance of imagination and creativity to uh, to get this to happen, which just proves that it doesn't happen without a mind causing it to happen. It doesn't happen without a creator. Now, of course, I could be wrong, and and the chemistry of life could be. Uh, a trillion times more complex than any of us even have ventured so far, and we can just never do that, uh, like, the, like the theoretical uh, um, uh, barriers to time travel. It, it's theoretically you just, you just can't, uh, you can't time travel. Uh, you can't go backwards in time. Uh, you can only go faster or slower in the forward direction, and, but then maybe we can break that, and of course they do it all the time on Star Trek and other shows. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been talking to talk, Dr. Charles Jackson. He's a director of College Ministry of Creation Truth Foundation. You can learn more about Creation Truth Foundation by going to their website, creationtruth.com. Dr. Jackson, thank you for being on uh, Table Talk Radio. You're welcome, Evan. And thank you, Jesse Gigline, for being my guest co-host for this program. Well done. Well, thank you, sir. First Corinthians 1 says... 
where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So look how far we've come scientifically. We've come a long way. And maybe, as Dr. Jackson just said, we'll even come to the point uh, after much more research that we'll actually be able to create an artificial life form in the lab. But look what, how far we've come and how hard we've tried to even do that. When on day one of this universe, our Lord spoke and life began. The, the, the wise men of today speak and they create scientific methods. And, and it's all fascinating science. And, th and through science, of course, we, we discover that we look at creation and, and see its complexity. And, of course, we realize that there is a God higher than us. But it's in the preaching of the gospel that we find out what that God has done for us. We preach Christ and him crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But it's the message of salvation that God has given to us, that our sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ on the cross, and he gives us life and salvation. Thanks for listening to this edition of Table Talk Radio. You can discuss this topic on our website, tabletalkradio.org. Click the forum button and you'll find a link to this week's show, and you can discuss in more detail with all of our listeners about this very topic. Thanks for tuning in to Table Talk Radio.